0: Welcome to Kelly Drye's Full Spectrum podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Drye Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryefullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes.
1: This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group.
0: Welcome to the latest episode of Kelly Dry and Warren's a Full Spectrum Podcast Series. I'm Steve Augustino from the Communications Group. I'm Brad Currier from the Communications Group. And we are the Enforcement Guys. This is this is part two of our year in review on FCC enforcement. Uh, if you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that first before digging into this one. In part one of our year in review... We talked about the major trends that we've seen under FCC Chairman Pai. We've talked about the kinds of things that he was interested in, the types of areas, and his promise to go back to the basics with enforcement. Uh, That's a promise that he's largely delivered upon. So encourage you to go back and listen to that. Here in Part 2, what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit deeper dive into a few issues uh, that have been of importance to the FCC and also some of the enforcement tools that the FCC has looked at. Um, so, as we do that, uh, we're going to dig into a few of these things. I think several of these are kind of illustrated by some of the FCC's actions in Robocall. So those of you who are TCPA fans will be um, will find this doubly interesting, hopefully, hopefully. Um, but let's start now with one of the issues that is of the few that Robocallers don't have. Because robocallers don't need prior FCC permission to operate. So those who do have FCC licenses, we're going to look at the FCC's enforcement approach as it relates to that.
1: Sure. So continuing the focus he advocated as a commissioner, Chairman Pai has made greater use of other non-monetary enforcement tools. The one we're going to focus on here is revocation of authority. Notably, he's raised the issue, but as we're just about to discuss, not yet pulled the trigger in revoking any carrier's authority, at least in the ones that we're talking about. So in addition to assessing fines, the FCC often ordered targets in 2018 of enforcement actions to submit a report on why the agency should not initiate proceedings to revoke their authorizations. Now, if you go back and you're listening to part one, one of those examples would be the Data Connects case that we talked about during part one. Now, Chairman Pai and Commissioner O'Reilly, they support revocation as a non-monetary enforcement tool after questioning prior FCC leadership for not shutting down repeat bad actors. I mean, at a certain point, fines don't do the job if there's no money there to get. Right. And actual
0: revocations have been very, very rare. I think the original poster child for this was Daniel Fletcher, and that was in the early to maybe mid-1990s. Uh, there have been a couple of other cases before Pi took over, but you could count them on one hand, and basically, those were entities that either didn't exist anymore or were, were avoiding FCC's uh, scrutiny.
1: Yeah, revocation's been rarely used in the FCC's history. I mean, even if you go all the way back against common carriers, um, it's normally reserved for those kinds of regulaties that Steve was saying, you know, they repeatedly fail to respond to commission inquiries or meet even the most basic obligations as a regulatee. They're not paying regulatory fees, and actually, there's an instance where, if they're in non-payment of regulatory fees, revocation actually can be streamlined. It can be a much quicker process than the process that we're going to discuss here, because here the FCC, if they're going to try to revoke uh, a the regulates authority for sort of violations, bad actions, they're going to face a number of legal hurdles. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, well,
0: basically, we, we have to look at the process here first. So, So what they've added in these enforcement actions is, and in addition to responding about the fine, we want you to submit a report or explain why we should not take action against you to revoke your authority. It is the equivalent to like a show cause proceeding that many of the state proceedings, uh, state PUCs had used. And and so basically the idea was come out, present some evidence, show why we shouldn't do this. But if the FCC were to begin that, they would have to start a separate proceeding in order to revoke the authority. And they'd have to propose to revoke the authority. Uh, Now, in one of the hurdles to doing that and accomplishing that is a legal question right up front. Um, Section 504C of the Communications Act prevents or limits the ability of the FCC to use an NAL as the basis for its action. And what it says specifically is that the FCC can't use the fact of an NAL uh, in any other proceeding before the commission to the prejudice of the person against whom the NAL has been issued unless and until... Either the forfeiture is paid or um, the court of competent jurisdiction has ordered payment of that forfeiture. And we've talked many times before, getting to a court and getting in front of a court is very, very difficult.
1: Yeah. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about more of that today.
0: Right. So so basically, you know, just the starting assumption is, is then going to be the NAL is not final in any of these proceedings. That means the commission has to operate according to the limits of 504C which means they can't revoke simply because they've issued an NAL.
1: That's true. I mean, there has been instances, though, and the FCC has taken the position in the past that while they can't use the mere fact that they issue an NAL, they certainly have said they have the ability to use the facts underlying the NAL, in what they end up doing. And you see this a lot in upward forfeiture adjustments. But there they're saying, it's not because we issued an NAL that we're doing this. It's because of the bad behavior that, yes, also resulted in NAL that we're also taking this other action. Right, right. They do it in the second... So, so, And that's interesting, and you're right. They can do that. But what that
0: means in these kinds of proceedings is that the FCC then has to afford due process to the target. Um, that means they have a chance to contest those facts... In this revocation proceeding, in addition to contesting it in the forfeiture proceeding, and it presents a different and arguably an easier path to getting in front of a court for review of both the facts and the legal significance of those facts. So it's a a, 504C is a legal hurdle here that the commission may not want to pursue because it opens up these new options for those who are accused.
1: Right. So, And in addition to that legal hurdle, I'm just digging a little bit more about this procedural hurdle. So you just talked about Section 504C. We can also talk about Section 312 of the Communications Act, which would require the FCC to issue an order to show cause and then provide the target of that enforcement action an opportunity to appear at a hearing, usually before the FCC's administrative law judge, before revoking authorizations and this essentially provides a second bite at the apple before a regulatory would lose its authorizations the commission's going to bear the burden of proof under a clear and convincing standard at that revocation hearing in order to be successful and what's sort of relatively recent news to uh, talk about is that the status of the FCC's administrative law judge is also a factor here. Uncertainty is sort of crept in recently, especially with Commissioner O'Reilly seeking to eliminate or reform the ALJ role. Commissioner O'Reilly believes that the ALJ hearing process takes too long and urged his colleagues to eliminate the ALJ function entirely now that may result in a more streamlined revocation process perhaps handled by the commissioners with some other alternative due process functions but the reforms may receive pushback from industry or others worried about a loss of those sort of procedural protections those due process protections in the meantime
0: yeah yeah absolutely
1: and it you know it's you're right that uncertainty with respect to that
0: ALJ, the ALJ the capability the capacity of the ALJ really to handle multiple proceedings was you know always an issue Um, So, so those are, you know, looking at this now and and kind of what this means, those are likely reasons why we haven't seen the commission move forward here and um, actually impose a revocation. So they've talked about it a lot and they've uh, initiated at least, you know, at the edges here, this idea, um, but they haven't pulled the trigger on it, so to speak. And, And really, you know, it's what we're likely to see here I think is if the Commission were to use revocation it's far more likely they're going to choose a target who um, is less likely to appear at a hearing or less able to mount a very vigorous defense here um, you know and they've done that a couple of times before when they actually did revoke entities as I said before that didn't didn't seem to exist but um, here you know i would expect more you know it's a company that's going to be bankrupt or has ceased operations or is unlikely to be able to mount a forceful defense
1: yeah that's correct and so turning from revocation a non-monetary tool that we've really seen an expansion of in 2018 let's also talk about the current fcc continuing to push the envelope regarding monetary forfeitures and specifically focusing on inability to pay and how it's being applied. So just sort of setting the stage a little bit, we'll talk about you know a couple of key cases. So back in May, the FCC imposed its largest forfeiture in its history. This is a $120 million fine against Adrian Abramovich. We've talked about this before on the podcast. And the companies he controlled for placing millions of spoofed robocalls. The FCC has also imposed an $81 million fine against Philip Russell and the company and his company that he controlled back in September, also for spoof robocalls. That was actually associated with the Robogalling campaign for health insurance. And there was also a $1.8 million fine against Scott Malcolm and the company that he controlled in February for junk fax violations under the TCPA. Now, the FCC imposed these significant fines against not just the company, but also uh, you know, key personnel, usually the, the sole shareholder or the president of the company, despite supported inability to pay claims. And that presents some issues under the Communications Act.
0: Right, right, and we're going to talk about both of those. We're going to talk about the, the personal liability in, in a few minutes, but focusing on the inability to pay, here again, this comes directly from the statute, Section 503 of the Communications Act does require the commission in assessing a forfeiture to consider several specified factors. And one of those factors is the ability of the entity to pay the forfeiture. And so it's required to listen to this issue. Um, Now, in the past, this this part's not in the statute, this is just kind of the FCC's practices, it usually has reduced a proposed fine when the amount of the fine is somewhere between 2% and 8% of the entity's gross revenues. Now, when you're dealing with a $120 million forfeiture or something else like that, We really are talking about something that would ordinarily kick in then at at that level. Um, But what the commission said, and and this is true in the statute, inability to pay is just one of the factors. It's one of the several things that it has to weigh um, about this. And the commission has been migrating more towards a, well, yes, inability to pay is – we do consider that – but it's outweighed by other factors, and they've pointed off most often to egregiousness. I think is the is the main one they've focused on here. Yeah,
1: there's a number. The, the violation was intentional. It was repeated. It resulted in significant monetary gain. Those are all other factors. But you, what you see, especially in the cases where you know we we teed up here, the FCC placing particular emphasis on this egregiousness factor, which really seems to serve as a general catch-all for consumer harm by the apparent violations or other alleged bad behavior. And, you know, in, in russell in particular, talking about how inability to pay is seen by the commission now, the FCC indicated in russell that tax returns are not necessarily dispositive regarding an inability to pay claim, suggesting that the agency may demand further accounting or financial information from targets before reducing a forfeiture. Yeah, that that was interesting
0: because that's normally what they say, you know, in even in the NAL. They're like, if you're going to make an inability to pay argument – You must produce three years of your tax returns so that we can evaluate this. And usually that is, you know, uncontested as those are what the revenues are. But in Rossell, they suggested that, no, they might actually go a little deeper than that.
1: Right. So looking beyond tax returns can make inability to clay that much harder to support with the agency because presumably there are going to be tax returns already available. Uh, for the entity that's the subject of the NAL. But if they have to then seek other account information or audits or other things to produce, that itself imposes costs on the target to then prove that they don't have the ability to pay the forfeiture in the first place. And it's been interesting recently where we compare Uh, Commissioners when they were in the minority and what they said about certain issues, and now that they're in the majority, because in a 2015 dissent, Commissioner O'Reilly questioned the FCC's often cursory response to inability to pay claims that, you know, Steve, you just sort of described, and he encouraged his colleagues to take closer look in such cases at the effect of the proposed forfeiture and what it may have on the future financial viability of the company. So you had mentioned that the FCC will. Potentially reduce a fine to two to eight percent of gross revenues, and what Commissioner O'Reilly said there. Well, what about net revenues? Should that actually be the benchmark there? Because something that could be merely seen as two to eight percent of gross revenues still could be far beyond the balance sheet of what the company can actually sustain.
0: Yeah. yeah, and actually, you know, as an as an advocate and practitioner here, I've always felt that the focus on gross revenues was unfair, particularly to resellers and those who don't own their own network, because a large portion of their gross revenues is being paid to others just to obtain the facility. So they're not really accessible. They may be operating on a very small margin here, which is their real viability question. So I was actually, in 2015, encouraged by Commissioner O'Reilly. I thought, okay, well, maybe we will see inability to pay become something that much is much. Um, more prevalent and a little bit easier to achieve.
1: Yeah, and but then when you look at some of the statements that have uh, accompanied the most recent items from Commissioner O'Reilly and others, there's an absence of this concern for inability to pay, at least for spoofed robocalling uh, operations. And that would seem to suggest that maybe unlike with other targets of enforcement actions in the past perhaps the FCC doesn't see the same value in the continued viability of large-scale robocalling operations. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you hit it on the head. I think that's
0: really the issue here is that um, in some enforcement actions, an objective of the FCC is to put that entity out of business, to take them out as an actor. And in that case, the commission you know, is not going to be very receptive to an inability to pay, the future viability, of the company, et cetera. In other cases where you know the entity is a you know a generally established industry player, a you know a viable player, one who makes positive contributions, I think the commission is going to be more concerned with this issue, and the viability is certainly going to be something that they will hopefully take a closer look at.
1: Sure. I mean, if it involves a service provider who has a you know wide, customer base that potentially could result in complaints back to the FCC for taking them out of the market, that might be something that would give them pause before then just sort of pushing the inability to pay factor aside. Great.
0: Okay. Let's move then to the second issue, which is uh, the question of personal liability.
1: So the FCC often found owners and operators of targets joint and severely liable for significant fines, You know, like the examples we just discussed. Now, the FCC generally doesn't hold jurisdiction over an individual unless that individual, him or herself, is the actual regulated entity. And a good example there would be an amateur radio operator. The the person is the regulatee. So piercing the corporate veil here is a very fact-specific inquiry and often involves questions of both federal and state law being applied. But the FCC in most of these cases broadly claims the right to impose personal liability so long as certain common identity, common control elements are satisfied and such action is quote unquote necessary to preserve the integrity of FCC rules or programs. But nearly all enforcement actions can be justified as necessary to ensure integrity of a program. Now, so far in these personal liability cases, the FCC has been careful to allege that the relevant individuals personally participated in the apparent violations, that they weren't just at the top of the company. They either knew or actively participated in the apparent violations. But it's never indicated that such direct participation is necessary for it to impose personal liability, which potentially presents major due process concerns. Right. Well, the the
0: other thing is that the commission has sometimes describe this as piercing the corporate veil, but they don't follow a strict um, state law on piercing the corporate veil. They don't follow that strict approach to this. They have taken the position, it seems, that they have broader authority, that whether it's under federal common law for piercing the corporate veil or because there's a regulatory aspect to this, that they can look more broadly beyond the corporations. And, you know, I had gone back and looked at this one time for on a different matter. And back when the commission did things like um, comparative broadcast hearings or had, to, had market share limitations on the number of stations that people can control and stuff like that, they did look kind of very loosely beyond the corporate form to say who really has an attributable interest there. And that was easy to see that connecting up with the regulatory policy. Here in the enforcement context, it's arguably different, and that's something you know, that the commission has not fully explained yet in any of the, uh, the enforcement cases we look at.
1: Sure. And one of the things to circle back on is the idea that the FCC doesn't actually have the authority to sue these individual targets in court directly to collect the unpaid fines. So instead, the FCC must refer the uncollected fines to the DOJ and ask it to bring suit, ask it to pursue the personal liability. Now, we talked about in past podcasts, prosecutors may be unwilling or unable due to resource constraints to pursue those referrals, even if those involving large fines – And then even when they do act on referrals, this often results in settlements that can be potentially far below the forfeiture amount proposed by the NAL.
0: Right, right. Or, or, you know, and and I've been in one of these cases before uh, where, you know, it shifted from the FCC to the DOJ looking at at this. And, you know, the DOJ has a different perspective on it. They have different uh, concerns. They don't necessarily have the same regulatory policy concerns, so they do look at this differently. I, I settled my case, for example, for a number that was pretty close to what I had offered the FCC beforehand, but in my settlement, I didn't have to do the compliance plan and all the other stuff that comes with an FCC settlement because we were dealing with DOJ. So it was an example kind of the different regulatory concerns. But what that means here is because it's so hard to get in front of a court, we have not yet seen the inability to pay – or I'm sorry, the personal liability issues tested fully in the courts. Um, about the closest I think the commission is to this right now um, is a litigation over a 2012 NAL, which turned into a 2016 forfeiture order against Patrick Bryan Hines and the companies that he controlled for failing to pay regulatory fees and contribute to the universal service programs. Now, the FCC had issues with the nature of the service itself um, in addition, but they hadn't taken enforcement action on that. They took it for this, and they brought liability specifically against Mr. Hines individually. And um, so following the procedures, the DOJ has brought a collection action against the companies and against Mr. Hines. It subsequently dismissed the collection action against the companies, which at that point, I think, had already filed for bankruptcy. Um, so there really wasn't any, anything that they could collect. Um, but as of now, as of early 2019, the personal liability action against Mr. Hines continues. Um, it has not been dismissed. And it's apparently waiting a court's ruling on the validity of that claim. So depending upon the outcome there of that, Um, that may bolster or undercut the way the FCC looks at these personal liability issues in the future.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, looking ahead, you know, as you're talking about sort of next steps on this inability to pay and personal liability issue, I mean, as the FCC is not directly responsible for bringing the collection actions or defending forfeiture amounts of court, it seems unlikely, at least under the current leadership, that it's going to change its approach to inability to pay claims and personal liability anytime soon. However, and we saw this under the last administration, Congress has previously and repeatedly gone back to the agency, the FCC, uh, for large uncollected fines. And so with a new divided uh, government coming in and increased potentially in congressional oversight, we may see pressure come once again on the agency to better monitor and pursue collection activities.
0: Right. And that's one element. The other element that I would point that may lead towards this, and we've we've discussed this in other contexts and uh, other podcasts as well, is that the likelihood of these court challenges working their way through um, increases as the FCC continues to impose large forfeitures um, and proceeds forward with those. So at some point – Either the entities are going to be unwilling to deal with the FCC and say, I'll take my chances in court, or they're unable to reach a settlement with the FCC or unable to do the compliance plan things and the other stuff that the FCC wants as part of any settlement and therefore kind of forced to the courts on this. So as those factors play out, we might find more of these Goldilocks cases that are just right for getting to a court and getting through the courts into a decision.
1: So, we just looked sort of at inability to pay and personal liability as sort of a macro issue. We can talk a little bit about its application to a specific area of the law, and this is pretty much going to take us home on part two here, which is the FCC's apparent expansion of robocall enforcement. I say apparent, but Chairman Pai has clearly used the enforcement process to address unwanted robocall issues, which continue to represent one of the largest sources of consumer complaints received by the FCC. And so, in 2018, The FCC proposed or imposed over $200 million in fines for unlawful caller ID spoofing and or TCPA violations. These actions mostly targeted small companies and individuals that originated a large number of spoof robocalls that resulted in a large number of consumer complaints. However, the actions are not necessarily making a dent in the overall volume of robocalls, and they're more symbolic to show the FCC is on the robocall beat than a practical way of actually changing the process of making the robocalls.
0: And and that's where robocalling enforcement sort of ties back to the earlier issues is that a lot of this and a lot of the actions the commission takes, it's about sending that message and not necessarily about collecting the fine. Um, You know, or it's aimed at putting the target out of business by imposing these really large Actions on there. So, but but how's this fit in overall, and why you know why do you say it's an expansion? Let me let me dig into that a little bit more here because what the commission is doing with respect to these fines um, is that it's using spoofing and the spoofing obligations uh, and the spoofing re- restrictions, I should say, to speed its robocall enforcement because it enables it to skip that first step of issuing a citation. Under the TCPA, if it's really going after the entity for sending an unlawful robocall, the FCC has to issue a citation to the target first, and then if the target does it again after that, then the FCC can take enforcement action. The spoofing provisions don't have that citation requirement on it. So it's an easier way to get there And given the amount of work the commission has to do to identify the entities to build the case to show that these calls originate from certain things, it's very difficult. And so they're using spoofing to get there faster here. Now, it took aim previously when it was doing this at robocallers who were engaged in sales activities that themselves were deceptive or fraudulent in some way. Um, But the Rossell case is one that didn't involve the allegations that the – robocalls were for purposes of a scam. Um, so they seem to, what, what we're seeing here really is a shift, I think, in, in the FCC's approach on this. Spoofing itself, the commission is saying, is inherently deceptive and motivated by an intent to cause harm. Now, they recognize there still are, are some legitimate reasons for spoofing, um, but this kind of run-of-the-mill spoofing, if you will... Um, the FCC is prosecuting that as if that is a cover-up, as, as, if, as if the concealing the identity is itself a part of a uh, scheme to uh, violate the TCPA, and therefore they're moving directly forward on that.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so, looking towards maybe what's going to come in twenty nineteen and next steps, I mean, the FCC continues to be concerned with whack a mole robocalling enforcement that actually fails to address the underlying factors that facilitate these large scale automatic dialing operations that we're talking about. And this can be seen, and we, this is a topic we've touched upon, you know, every now and again. It's very similar to pirate radio, in which the robocalling equipment and software is relatively inexpensive. And targets may cease operations temporarily, uh, and maybe in response to an investigation or other potential issues, only to then start up again in a new location under a new name, frustrating enforcement efforts and basically lengthening out any time period on any ongoing investigation. Anyway, so the FCC has been turning to its bully pulpit, and you know, Steve, I think we want to talk about this about actually maybe moving it from the robocallers themselves to potentially some of the gatekeepers.
0: Yeah, yeah, there, there's certainly the potential to do that. And, you know, in Pirate Radio, we talked about that, you know, going after the property owners potentially instead of or in addition to the actual operator. Um, but this um, this sort of bully pul- pulpit approach is another page out of the standard playbook for the FCC. Um, it, it really is. It's a way for the commission to say, we're going to bring attention on this issue and we're going to try to enlist others to help us to discourage this. And specifically what has happened in 2018 is that towards the end of 2018 in November, as arguably as what Chairman Pai is doing is prepping to handle TCPA issues on the remand in the ACA International, which we're expecting and hoping sometime in 2019, um, he took a couple of actions that um, are worth talking about here. Number one, he sent a letter to um, voice providers who had not or apparently had not established plans to implement the call authentication process called shake and stir. And that letter went out to 11 of those carriers and asked them, what are you doing? Tell us what the timelines are on that. Um, And in particular, he threatened enforcement actions or potentially regulatory actions if those carriers don't voluntarily implement those call authentication processes within one year. So he kind of set the fall of 2019 as the expectation date on that. So, you know, it's unclear exactly what the commission could do and whether they really could do it on an enforcement. It might end up being um, rulemaking and and an action there if those entities who don't don't, um, implement call um, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the call authentication shake and stir by that.
1: Oh, and if, they, if not rulemaking, then, as we discussed back in part one, we get to the point of maybe pushing the industry to adopt these best practices, if not through direct regulation, then at least through this type of uh, regulatory pressure from the leadership.
0: Right, right. The other action the commission took right in the same time frame was that um, the chairman urged all carriers and sent letters out to a, a set of carriers for them to participate in industry processes – that are enabling or assisting the commission in tracing back the origin of these robocalls. So U.S. Telecom, one of the trade associations for major carriers, has had this uh, process, this traceback group in place. And there are, I think, 22 carriers at this time that are voluntarily participating on this. And the FCC sent letters to another eight and said, why aren't you in this? You should be in this. And they suggested there that there might be liability to them for not participating in that. It's, it's unclear where that is, but, but clearly the commission wants the industry to be voluntarily trying to do this. And so as much light as they can shine on it as possible, that's what they're planning to do. And we're seeing these types of actions as ways of getting there.
1: Yeah, so we've covered a lot today, so I don't know, Steve, if you want to take us home for 2018 as we move further into 2019. Right, let's try and wrap it up. So, so what's all this mean, right? We've got two different parts of
0: this. You know, since taking control of the FCC in early 2017, uh, Chairman Pai of the FCC has promised to change an approach. And they have moved away from enforcement items on certain controversial areas, in particular – Uh, broadband, privacy, the principle-based areas. That's what we've seen. We've seen the um, the back-to-the-basics, nuts-and-bolts, rules-based enforcement on that. But that doesn't mean that the FCC is um, immune from pushing the envelope on this. And we have seen that, and that's what we've kind of delved into here in a little bit more detail. There are still areas— where the FCC is pushing the edges maybe of its authority or of proper interpretation to say it wants to do this in order to achieve enforcement goals. So inability to pay, you know, piercing the corporate veil, the robocall approaches, all are efforts by the commission to achieve certain policy outcomes through enforcement. And that's what we're seeing. So what are we going to see, though, in 2019? What The major change in all of this really is the change in the U.S. Congress. Now we have a divided Congress. Uh, We have a House that's under Democratic control, and uh, the Republicans still control the Senate. I think what that means is that we're going to see um, more oversight, particularly on the House side, in what the FCC is doing. And Congress using sort of its bully pulpit to keep hauling commissioners up to justify and explain their actions and explain what the commission is doing not only on enforcement, but in other areas. But I think that's definitely something we're going to see an increase of in 2019. So with that, I want to thank everybody for sticking through this, for listening to us. Uh, We hope that you have found this very interesting, uh, rather. and we encourage you to continue to monitor uh, us, to listen to the podcast, to look at our blogs, to follow us on Twitter, Uh, keep up with us. We will continue to follow these issues as things move forward, and we hope to see you again soon. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views
1: or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.